All right, good evening, everybody. Glad you're out with us tonight. Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, please, while I get wiggled into my seat. Matthew chapter 16. And by the grace of God, we have a lot to cover in this chapter. So I'm going to, I'm foregoing a song tonight just so that we can have a few extra minutes to, to cover everything that we need to tonight. Matthew 16, and let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this privilege to uh, sit before the Word of God and to speak forth about the Word of God. Thank you for the freedom to do it, the opportunity, as limited as it is. We still appreciate that we can learn. And I pray that you guide us tonight. Let the Spirit of God go alongside us, sit alongside us, and mighty whisper in our hearts the um, eternal truths that this chapter has to offer. Please help me, Lord, as I teach. I, I, I'm not sufficient, but I'm, I'm confident that you are. Help all of us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, the outline that you uh, have seen on the PBI group, let me quickly give it again for those of you that aren't on the group. This chapter, I believe, breaks down into five parts. You could probably make more, but I'm just for the sake of convenience going to break it into four parts. Number one, demanding indications. We're going to see they wanted a sign from heaven. They demanded an indication that Jesus was the Messiah. That's verses 1 to 5. Verses 6 to 12, doctrinal dangers. We're going to look at the leaven of the Pharisees and the uh, Sadducees. Part 3, denoting identities. Denoting identities. Whom do men say that I am? And then Jesus says to Simon, thou art Peter. So there's some identifying going on. Denoting identities. Verses 13 to 20. And then verses 21 to 28. 21 to 28. That's part four. That'll be dying and denying. Dying and denying. And we'll see how Jesus focuses on his soon demise at Jerusalem. And then he also speaks about how that uh, plays into discipleship. All right, Matthew 16, verse 1. The Bible says, The Pharisees also, with the Sadducees, came. Now, this is not the first time that these two opposing groups uh, were in the same place at the same time. The first time you read both Pharisee and Sadducee in the same verse, Matthew 3, verse 7. This is the next time, chronologically speaking, if you look at all the Gospels, it's the next time that we see those two groups together. And in Matthew 3, they came to John's baptism. It, it shows no collusion there. It just tells us that, that both groups were represented in the audience that day. The way this is worded, it looks as if Pharisee and Sadducee has now, even though they, they are very much opposed to each other, doctrinally speaking, they have a point of agreement, and that is they're against Jesus. They don't accept Him as the Messiah. So now they've come together, and it won't be the last time that they, I want to say, join forces. We'll see it again later in the book of Matthew. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting desired Him. So they're testing Him by asking this question. Tempting desired Him that He would show them a sign from heaven. Now, to say a sign from heaven, give us a sign from heaven, it's an indirect way of talking about God. 
a sign from heaven. They're not asking for a sign from the universe. It's implied in what they're saying, the one who inhabits heaven, who dwells there. Uh, you, you hear this in many other phrases. Uh, the prodigal son says, I've sinned against heaven and against thee. Well, he's not trying to say he sinned against the physical universe. Uh, it's just an indirect way of talking about God. Now, this request, if you just to remind yourself, back in Matthew 12, verse 38, it says, Certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees uh, answered and said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. So this is not the first time Jesus has been presented with this demand. We would uh, show us a sign from heaven. Verse 2, Matthew 16, 2, He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. So the sun's going down, and they can see clearly the, the, that beautiful red sunlight just fading into the evening night. And they say, it's going to be a, we're going to have a nice night, uh, you know, fair weather tonight. Everybody, to a certain extent, plays weatherman at some juncture, right? We go out and the wind's blowing one way or the other, or we see clouds of a certain shape and people pretend to know how the weather's going to act. Verse 3, And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering, lowering. Uh, that We would say overcast. It's a cloudy day. So you go out and you say, you know, it's in the middle, it's the morning, the sun should be up, but the sunlight is blocked, hence there's still this red haze to it, and it's very cloudy. So what are we going to have today? It's going to be rainy day, foul weather. Oh, ye hypocrites, they're pretenders. Why would he say pretenders in, in this case? In many other cases, that was, it was obvious how they were pretending. But why in this case? They were pretending not to know what was going on. Jesus had given clear evidence, many, many signs, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And they're pretending as if those signs weren't legitimate or weren't adequate. Deep down, there were a number of Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief rulers. They did know the truth behind the signs. They knew they were legitimate, but because there were political implications, their reputation would have been lost, a lot of other factors, caused them to purposely deny what was very obvious. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? He says, you guys can look up and take a look at what's going on up in the heavens, right? Because that's the wording they used. Show us a sign from heaven. So he says, you want to talk about heaven? All right, let's take a look up there. You just take a look around, and then you can pretend to know what's going to happen next. Can't you look around at what's going on in our society, the miracles, the preaching, everything that I've done? Can't you take the Scripture, see how I'm fulfilling it, and then realize who I am and what's coming next? So they claim to be able to predict the weather and understand the weather to a certain extent, then surely they should be able to understand what's going on with the Messiah. But they're plain ignorant. And maybe some of them were, but some of them were not, for sure. Uh, and I know that, by the way, in John chapter 12, down there, I think it's verse 40, it talks about how some of them believed, but they didn't confess, and so forth. So I, knew, I know that they were being hypocritical to an extent. Now, as it pertains to the signs of the times, this same principle applies even now. We can 
take a look at what's going on around us in the world, compare it to the Scripture, and see where we're at on God's timetable. Right Now, ever since the New Testament got started, people have believed, Christians have believed, that they are living in the end times. And they always have had a legitimate case for that. But as time has gone on, the case for saying we are in the end times and the rapture is nine, the Lord's coming back any day, that case only gets stronger and stronger because Paul said, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The things that Paul described about society, about apostasy, those signs were present in his day, but they are intensifying and becoming more frequent. So there's there's always a stronger case building for the Lord coming soon. And I have no problems. It doesn't hurt my conscience at all to say, uh, I, I believe the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we heard the sound of a trumpet before this lesson ended. Man, that would be wonderful. Verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Now be careful not to take that one phrase and run off and, and start teaching doctrines that spring just from that phrase. God, on many occasions, offers a generation a sign. Jesus came doing many signs, wonders, miracles, right? So the fact that somebody says, God, I need evidence, I, I want this confirmed, or I'd like to see you know, something to help establish it, that's not wrong. But you, you keep this phrase within its context. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Af, after they have already seen hundreds, maybe thousands of legitimate signs, and yet they seek another one. The problem is, no matter what they see, they'll always find a reason not to believe it. They don't want to believe it. And that's where the wicked and adulterous generation aspect of it comes in. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now this, Jesus already gave this answer back in Matthew 12. We talked about it as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale and so forth. It says, and he left them and departed. So he, he reminds them of that answer and off he goes. No need to spend a long time re-explaining uh, what he's already told them. Good lesson, by the way, in that uh, for, for soul winning. Right? If you're witnessing to somebody and you've already explained things to them, you don't need to stand there and re-explain. Say what you need to say. Go on. Verse 5, And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. This is one evidence that the disciples were not Baptist. Amen. If they were Baptist, they wouldn't have forgotten the food. They definitely have food. <laughs> so they have come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to collect Jesus and, and head to the next place, and they forgot to pack some bread for the trip. Verse 6, Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. So they, what's on the forefront of their mind is we forgot our lunch. And now Jesus mentions leaven, right, which is connected to bread. And they make this connection, right, they're, they're between their head and their stomach. Yo, he, He's warning us about a physical, literal, actual piece of bread, that we shouldn't take any bread that the Pharisees and Sadducees might offer us 
be, and and I'm, I'm assuming that they were understanding Jesus' warning to say that the Pharisees and Sadducees have either put something in the bread, there's something wicked about the bread because it came from them, which they, I'd like to say that they knew better, right? I think we all know better that a piece of bread is a piece of bread, right? Paul points this out in the New Testament. He makes it clear. Meat that is offered in an idol's temple, it's still meat. Now, the fact that it's connected to an idol, it doesn't change that the meat is just meat. It's just a piece of, of breifleis. That's all that it is. For testimony's sake, you might want to steer clear of it, right? 1 Corinthians 8. But the bread is bread. The meat is just meat. The disciples, however, they, they read into this and they go down the wrong doctrinal path. I'd like to point out quickly, however, for those of you listening, God's called you to preach. I want you to see how Jesus can take what might seem very common and use it as a very powerful sermon illustration. He, he illustrates his point. He takes the weather, right? That's very common. But in, in the first few verses, you see how he used it to illustrate his point, something as simple as how people view the weather. Here, Jesus takes bread, a piece of bread and leaven, and he uses that to warn his disciples. Now, the disciples didn't understand the illustration. As you're going to see now, a little explanation was needed. But you can find, if you just look around your home, look around your life, you as a preacher, right, you should get used to the idea that you can take pretty much anything and use it somehow as an illustration um, of a spiritual reality. Now, verse number 8, which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? So they thought, you know, Jesus is angry at us because we forgot lunch, and now he's warning us not to fellowship with or take this defiled bread or whatever it is. They completely misunderstood the warning. It had nothing to do with physical food that you eat. Verse 9, do you not yet understand Neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Now this is, as we've gone through the book of Matthew recently, Matthew 14, we had the first feeding of the multitude. In Matthew 15, last week, we had the second occasion of it, the seven loaves for the four thousand. And now in Matthew 16, he's asking them, guys, have you forgotten what you recently saw? It maybe was just weeks before this that they saw these great miracles. When it comes to an abundance of bread, Jesus is able to make that happen. Jesus would not be worried that they forgot their lunch, that they didn't bring bread. So to think that Jesus is now warning them about physical bread and about what they're about to eat, there's really no logical reason to think that's what's going on, and that's what Jesus is trying to say. Verse 11, How is it that you do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? This is an interesting, this gives us an, a, an interesting opportunity to learn something about how the Bible and how God uses metaphors. Right? Remember those two words, like and as, that I've told you in discipleship, you need to watch for those words in the Bible. Sometimes God uses a metaphor 
without saying like or as. Right? Sometimes it's spelled out, this is like that. But at other times, he, he comes right out with the illustration. And you need to have ears to hear you know, and be able to, to see behind what he's saying. It's not that he's trying to confuse them or, or hide truth from them, but he's trying to illustrate it so that as they meditate on it, it offers more and more meaning. When the literal truth of something is completely absurd or makes no sense, it's completely illogical, then there's a very good chance you're dealing with a metaphor. As a matter of fact, I can't think of one occasion where you wouldn't do that. When you look at it and think, now, if this literally means what it says, then it creates something absolutely ludicrous, ridiculous, balachlich. Then you would say there must be something symbolic or, or it must, must be a metaphor. A great example of this is Jesus saying, I am the door. Now, he didn't say, I am a door. He said, I am the door. But you wouldn't, listen, you wouldn't hear that statement and think, Jesus is a literal, physical door that hangs on hinges and opens and closes. You wouldn't think that. To, to think that that's what Jesus meant is absolutely absurd. Now, in John Lennox, he does a great job of pointing this out in several of his books. and many of his uh, talks, he, he uh, explains this. Jesus is not a literal door, but he is a real door. See, so anytime God uses a metaphor, it represents a real truth, but it's just illustrated by, with, with that metaphor. And that's the same thing here. Leaven, right? Leaven in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but when you look at the properties of leaven and what it does in bread and in cakes and so forth, it, it will offer a very interesting insight into false doctrine, which we're about to see, and into moral depravity. You, you find leaven being used in that way in 1 Corinthians 5. So when Jesus is warning them of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he, he's, he's helped them understand it here in verse 12. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread. So they got it. They went, okay, it's just a metaphor. We get it now. Not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So we get it. Bread is just bread. That's not our concern. And the fact that we don't have enough bread, we might have to borrow some or take some from somebody else, you know, receive some from somebody else. That's not the issue. Jesus is telling us to watch out for what these guys might feed us spiritually. Right? When a man preaches or teaches, he is feeding you. That's the warning. Now, what is the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? It is spelled out in Scripture to a great extent. If you read the history of those two groups, you'll learn more about what they believed. But you do find it in the Bible. The Pharisees had a very heavy uh, emphasis on tradition, so much so that it actually took the place of and, and went farther than the Scripture in their minds. The Sadducees, they completely discounted and did not believe in a spiritual world at all. No angels, no spirits, no resurrection. The Sadducees actually believed the Bible very literally and ignored any sort of spiritual reality or allegorical application. They just took the literal sense alone, which, which shows you that that's a problem if you do it that way. You need to be able to see 
there is literal parts of the Bible, obviously, but the Bible's much deeper than that, much more layered. So those are the specific doctrinal problems that you find in these groups, the things that really stand out about them. But the Pharisees and Sadducees actually shared one common, I want to say, fault that arose, I believe, from their false teaching, and that is self-righteousness. Both groups had a bad case of this. Now, this was a Jewish problem, right? It didn't come just from the Pharisees or Sadducees or scribes. It, it was a Jewish problem. We've studied this recently in Romans chapter 9, at the end of it, and then in Romans 10 verse 3, you'll remember what Paul said, that they went about to establish their own righteousness and did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. They had a zeal, Paul says, but not according to knowledge. So they were trying to establish how right they were. And at the heart of these false teachings, that's what it produced. It produced self-righteous, outward appearance, right? They, it just looked good on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Both, no matter what the false teaching was, it ended up making that mistake or bringing about that fault in those lives. Now, when you think about leaven, what, what is it? I looked it up today. Leaven is an agent, a baking agent, yeast most of the time. I, I think of yeast when I think of leaven. Leaven is, an, is a baking agent that produces air that causes bread or cake to rise. So it is the agent that produces this air that causes bread to, to puff up. Do you see how rich that illustration is? Be careful for false teaching that will puff you up, that will feed the fleshly desire for vain glory. And when you look around at the false teachings that are prevalent today, right? I think you'll find that there are quite a few false teachings that really make a big deal out of you. Be the best you you can be. Name it and claim it. God will give me what I want. Look at all these gifts that I have, right? There's a heavy emphasis on puffing that person up. I think that's a great warning. I think the illustration itself of leaven offers us a great warning beyond the particulars of the Pharisees and Sadducees or any cult for that matter. You look at the heart of it. What does it produce? That bloated, vainglory, self-righteous person. And that's what you avoid. Matthew 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you look on, the, on a Bible map at the land of Israel... This will be on the west coast, right? So the Mediterranean Sea, west coast right there. Kind of in the middle, middle-ish. It's an entire area. Um, you know, Caesarea Philippi, there is a city there, Caesarea. But if you look, there's, it's a nice little strip of land on the western coast. When he came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This gives me a chance to say something about... Jesus and God asking questions, right? Very first time we see God asking man a question, Adam, where art thou? Anytime, anytime God asks a question, he is not gathering information, right? 
For you and I, when we ask questions, we are gathering, often, we're gathering information. But even with us, sometimes we can ask a question for a different reason. We already know the answer. But what are we doing? We pose the question to start a conversation. Uh, I use this all the time with soul winning. I, actually, I'm trying to do both things at once. If you died today, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? I am trying to gather information about that person, and I'm also trying to start a conversation. Now, when it comes to Christ, he already knows what people are saying about him, but he's trying to generate a conversation with his disciples. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14, And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and some and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, this we already met in uh, Matthew 14, where Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. We talked about it briefly there. But as, as the stories about Jesus circulated through society, and as more and more people were exposed to his public ministry, people come up with all sorts of very fanciful explanations as to how he was able to do what he was doing. And people that were familiar with the prophetical books, right? Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, etc. They, they could see some common ground that Jesus had with those prophets and then would say, you know, maybe he's that prophet come back from the dead. I would say, though, if you go back and read, especially here, Jeremiah is named. Go back and read the book of Jeremiah, but this time do so looking at Jeremiah as a type of Christ. And see if you can recognize how many similarities there are between Jeremiah and the Lord Jesus. And it will really shed light on the kind of person, the kind of prophet, the kind of preaching that Jesus did. You go back and read the book of Jeremiah it was not tiptoeing through the tulips, right? Jeremiah, now, he had a very soft heart. His nickname is the weeping prophet for a reason. Jeremiah 9, he said, I, I wish that my eyes were like rivers just filled with water because he really was brokenhearted for the people. But he was also very to the point. Saying, listen, you guys can kill me if you want, but if you do so, you're, you're, you have innocent blood on your hands. And he was constantly hated for telling the people the truth. But I'll let you read through that book and see those similarities. In verse 16, Jesus responds. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? He says, All right, that's what society has to say. What about you guys? What about the inner circle that knows me best? Whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ. Now, Christ, you've heard me mention this before. It's a Greek word, Christos, means the anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Mashiach or Mashiach, which is Messiah in English. So, thou art the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So, those two things went together. They were, I want to say synonymous, but they knew that the Messiah and the Son of God are one and the same person. So they, Simon Peter speaks on behalf of all the disciples, we know you are the promised one from the Old Testament. You're the Messiah. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, 
In the Hebrew language, the prefix bar means the son of, right? So bar abbas, bar abba, bar abbas, that's son of the father, bar on the front, son. You'll see another guy in the book of Acts named bar Jesus, so son of Jesus. Obviously, the, the human the human version of that name. And then, in this case, Bar-Jonah, the son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. So he uses his full name. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So how is it that Simon was able to see clearly who Jesus was? How is it that he did not get caught up in the rumors floating about, circulating through society? The Father had revealed some things to Peter. Now, I'd also like to say that other people in society, right, they had access to this knowledge. Peter, however, accepted it and believed it. Let, let me break it down like this. In Matthew 11, if you want to just flip back to that quickly, Matthew 11, verse 27, when Jesus says, the Father has revealed it to you, that revelation that the Father gave to Peter came, I believe, in, in two parts. Number one, it was clearly stated clearly stated, Jesus made the claim that He is the Son of God. Now, in Matthew 11, look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, so He's saying this out loud, I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And then Jesus goes right into a public invitation, Come unto me, all you that labor, heavy laden, and so forth. Jesus publicly said in the presence of his disciples that there was a relationship between him and God that was Father to Son. Now, the disciples by this point, they, they had already heard Jesus mention, right? That they had heard it said that Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist had said as much. So it's not like this was brand new information to them. But here it is clearly stated, right? Clearly stated. Then, coupled with the clear statement, you have confirming proof, confirming evidence. Uh, Matthew chapter 14. Look at the end of that chapter. This is where Peter walked on the water. Verse 33. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. See, this is, a, this is a claim that they'd already heard, they'd already accepted, but by the time you get to the miracle of walking on the water and Peter gets into the boat and the wind calms down automatically, I want to say that kind of sealed the deal. I think that's difficult to say when when the deal is actually sealed. I think their faith was constantly increased all the way through the resurrection and the ascension, even into the book of Acts. Their faith continued to increase. I believe that. But the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God was not merely a statement of John the Baptist. It wasn't merely a, a claim that Jesus made for himself. It was confirmed through his miracles. So by the time we get to Matthew 16... And Jesus asked, who do you think I am? You're the Messiah. We're convinced, Son of the living God. The Father revealed it to you. Through the claims, through the confirmation. The Father is the one orchestrating all of that, right? 
He's the one revealing it. So that's how the Father revealed it to Peter. Now, obviously, that information was available to the other disciples and to the people of the public. They heard Jesus make these claims. But these men, they, they heard it, they saw it, they accepted it. Verse 18, here's another part of the identifying in this passage. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, before this point in the book of Matthew, we do see where Simon is referred to as Peter. But remember that Matthew is writing this gospel after the ascension. So by the time Matthew sits down to write, he knows that Simon's new name is Peter. So that's why you'll find the name Peter in the earlier chapters of Matthew. Chronologically speaking, Simon was not known as Peter until this moment. Until this moment. Now, there was a hint of it. Come to John chapter 1. Let me show you. There was a hint of it when Jesus first met Peter. There was just a hint. I meant to grab a board. I don't have one. That's fine. I'll, you'll just have to bear with me as I explain some, uh, some Greek to you in just a moment. John 1, verse 40, 41. John 1, 41. He first, talking about Andrew, he first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is, being interpreted, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Kephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Kephas is a Chaldean word or an Aramaic name, right? What does it mean? It means a stone. Now, that's very important. It doesn't mean a rock, a big rock. It means a stone, which is small. The Greek behind the word stone is petros. Now, I'm just I'm going to anglicize that for you. P-E-T-R-O-S. Petros. Petros. That's the word for stone in that passage. Now come back to Matthew 16. Look at verse 18. I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. So he says, remember that? Well, let me. he didn't say that, but I'm sure Peter can remember this conversation. Jesus said that at one point he'll be called a stone. Here it is. Jesus is making it official. That thou art Peter. You know what the Greek word is for Peter? P-E-T-R-O-S. Petros. Petros, which means what? If you look it up in a Greek lexicon, which is like a Greek dictionary, a piece of a stone, a piece of a rock, rather, a piece of a rock. So you have a big rock and a little piece breaks off. We would, I think in Afrikaans, you say clippy, a clang clippy, clippy key, maybe something like that. Uh, this is a piece of a rock, small. It's just a stone, Petros, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, now that word, rock, is a different Greek word. It looks very much the same, but it's different. That Greek word is P-E-T-R-A, Petra, Petra. Petra means a mass of rock. It's a huge rock. In Chichewa, they have two words, and I know in Afrikaans, I, I can't remember. There's clip 
and then there's another word. It's escaping me now, but there's another word for, maybe somebody can slip it into the comments, a bigger word for, uh, or a word for a bigger rock. Just ran past me. Forgot it again. In Chichewa, they say mwala. That's a little stone. Mwala. And then tantwe. That's for a big rock. So I, I'm, I assume, right, in English we have a stone and we have a boulder or a rock in this, in this case. Uh, there's ways to designate the size of the rock. Now the reason I point this out is because there are people, especially the Catholic Church, that teach from this verse that Peter is the rock on which the church is built. And of course, that in and of itself is problematic. But then we have to go, somebody put it in, the, ah, rots, that's it, rots, thank you. That's the word I'm looking for, rots. I should have known that from the Urvinenslied, right? Anyway, okay. I told you I wasn't going to sing, so I shouldn't sing. Uh, where was I before the Afrikaans distracted me? Oh, yes. It's problematic to say Peter is the foundation of the church. When you have 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, that says, Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that should be pretty clear. But the Catholic Church takes it another step and says, Peter is the first pope, which is nowhere in the Bible. It's actually nowhere in history. It only exists in Catholic history books. They wrote it into history. But they say he's the first pope. So what Jesus is actually saying is that the church is built on the office of the pope, of whom Peter was the first. And that, line, that, that papal line of succession, they call it apostolic succession, has gone all the way until today's pope. Now, those of you that have had church history already, you know that story breaks down over and over again, historically speaking. It just won't work. Biblically speaking, it's, well, balachle. It's, it's not going to happen either. Not biblically. But we're just going to stick to the, to, to the point of this verse here. That thou art Peter, and upon this rock. Now you say, man, it looks like Peter and the rock go together. Now if you look at it in Greek, you see that it's different. If you look at it in English, comparing Scripture with Scripture, you see that in John, Peter is just a stone, kephas. And a rock and a stone, not the same thing. So even in English, we get, we get the difference. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, Jesus, when he says this rock, I believe he's pointing to himself. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock. That's not that unusual, actually. You say, but that's strange that Jesus would just all of a sudden point to himself. Thou art, he's talking to Peter, and then say, and I'm the rock. In John chapter 1, Jesus said, Destroy the temple in three days, I'll build it again. But he spake of the temple of his body. But you look there in that passage, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it again. What temple is he pointing to? He didn't point to the temple that Herod had rebuilt. He points this way. Upon, he says, Break down this temple, and in three days I'll build it up again. So this is, this is not an anomaly here. This is not unique. Jesus is known to do this. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now that matches the rest of Scripture to say Jesus is the foundation of the church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the last part of that verse, uh, it is often approached for, in, in a spiritual manner. How can I say this properly? 
I want to say it's given a spiritual application. And they say that the powers of hell will not overcome the church, that the church will prevail and one day will be victorious. Now, does that line up with Scripture? Yeah, yeah, it does. The church militant, right? You and I who are alive and remain, we're fighting the battle, fight the good fight of faith. We're, we're supposed to contend for the faith and eventually we become the church triumphant. We head up to heaven via the rapture. So yes, in the end, we do triumph. And the powers of hell, the demons of hell, they do not overcome us. So I appreciate that approach. But I, I don't think that's what Jesus meant there. If he wanted to say the powers of hell, he could have said it. But he said the gates of hell. I see that as something different. Because there are plenty of verses that do talk about hell being a real place, not a spiritual place. It's not a frame of mind or a, you know, an, a, an alternate realm. It's a real place right now located in the heart of the earth. And it is a prison. It has bars. It has torment. It is called a prison in 1 Peter chapter 3. Jesus said, I have the keys of hell and of death. Well, that makes sense of this gate then, right? So I believe when, when we look at this verse, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We, we need to identify what is the antecedent of it. It is a pronoun. It needs an antecedent. It needs a noun to go with it. What is the noun for it? There are three options in the verse. Peter, the rock, and the church. So, did Peter ever go to hell? Would he ever have to struggle with the gates of hell? No. So we can cross that off the list. The church. You say, well, the powers of hell are coming against the church and trying to topple it. And I get that. But we're talking about the gates of hell. The, the church is never going to be in hell and the gates trying to hold it back. So I crossed the church off the list. But the rock of which Jesus is speaking, pointing to himself... That, that rock, Jesus did go. His soul, the Bible says, was not left in hell, Acts 2.31. Uh, so when Jesus enters into hell, now we're not getting into the discussion, did he suffer there or not? But the fact is, I, he, his soul was there, and the gates of hell could not prevail against it. I believe the it is the rock. Jesus is the only one who went into hell and was able to cross over that great gulf fixed between hell and paradise. He had the keys. He could unlock that gate and cross over. So I believe Jesus is what we're reading about in the end of the verse. The gates of hell could not prevail against him because he referred to himself as a rock. He said it. Let me give you a couple cross-references quickly that goes with the term rock, showing you that it is Jesus. Romans 9.33. Romans 9.33. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Now, in all those places, you'll see the word rock is used. And in each context, it's clearly talking about Jesus. And... You'll see the Greek behind it matches this, that it is Petra every time. 
So there's, there's just no doubt as to how we should approach Peter and the rock and making that separation. All right, verse number 19. Jesus makes an interesting statement. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, stemming from what the Catholic Church does with verse 18, you can see how they might get excited about verse 19 and say, the Pope is the one that can let you into heaven or keep you out of it. The Pope has the authority to forgive sin or not forgive sin. So if you want to get to heaven, you got to go through him, hence you have to go through his church. Now that was the prevailing thought amongst Orthodox Christians for years and years and years in the West. In the East, of course, they went through their patriarch. But again, I don't think that they I don't think they're properly handling this verse. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are we dealing with? Two possibilities here. Number one, Peter is going to be used of the Lord to open up a way for people to come into the kingdom. Now, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14 and verse 27, which is the attendance code for tonight. Acts 14, 27. All right, Acts 14, 27. I want you to see particularly the wording that is used here. Acts 14, 27. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Notice the wording, the door of faith. If you want to open a door, it's a good idea to have a key. Now, that was Paul, by the way, in that verse talking about how he reached a certain group of Gentiles. Think with me, though, about the history of the book of Acts. Who was the first one in the New Testament to stand up and publicly preach to the, to the Jews, to the nation of Israel as a group? It was Peter, Acts chapter 2, right? Peter stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts 10, remember he has that vision, he gets sent to Cornelius' house, and Peter said, this is a strange thing that a Jew come into a bunch of Gentiles and the Gentiles hear the word. Who was the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to offer them entrance into the kingdom? It was Peter. So if somebody were to understand what we're reading in Matthew as Jesus promising Peter this privilege of opening the doors so that Jew and Gentile, which everyone, can come into the kingdom of heaven, have access to it. I think that makes sense. I don't have any issues with that. That lines up historically and scripturally. But I'm going to offer one other idea on this. When Jesus says, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, what if that, and just flip over to Matthew 19, what if that has to do with the millennium? What if that has to do with Peter having a a position of authority, great authority, in that millennial kingdom. Look at Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So maybe Jesus is pointing towards that millennial inheritance of a... Um, high position in the kingdom. 
Now, come back to Matthew 16 and verse 19. What about the end of it? Whatsoever thou shalt bind, whatsoever thou shalt loose, it, it gets affected. It affects what's going on in, in heaven. It affects the records in heaven. Now, binding and loosing, in this case, it has to do with forgiving. And we are going to study this much more in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to save a, a lot of the comments for then. Let me just quickly point one thing out. The Catholic Church jumps to this verse and says, you see, Peter was given this special privilege of being able to forgive sin or not forgive sin. To forgive it is to loose it. You're free of the debt. To bind it means you still have to deal with it, pay for it. So you're not forgiven. But look at Matthew 18. Look at verse 18. Matthew 18, 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye... That's yalla. He's talking. Jesus is talking to a group, all of His apostles. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this privilege of forgiving sin, not forgiving sin, that's not something just for Peter. All of the apostles could do that. And to be honest, you can see there's verses in the New Testament that talks about all of us being able to do that. We will learn this in Matthew 18, actually. That lesson was not only for the, the, the apostles, but the church, people in Christ church are supposed to practice this. And the warning is, if you don't deal with it now, if you don't forgive people now, then you have to deal with it on the other side. And we'll talk more about the binding and loosing as, as we get to it. Now back in Matthew 16, verse 20, Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Here we go again. Jesus says, now, shh, don't say anything. It for, for, you, for you and I, this should be counterintuitive. This should sit awkwardly with us. I'm a little worried about the Christian that reads this and says, Ah, finally a verse that says I shouldn't witness, right? You and I, we're working off of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. After the Holy Ghost has come, you'll be filled with power. You'll be witnesses unto me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part. That's what we're going with. We have to realize the context in which Jesus says this. He tells His disciples, don't, don't work your way around telling everybody that I'm Christ. They had been. They had been announcing this. Now He says, pull it back in for a bit, guys. Why? Same reason that Jesus told other people. Remember, He did miracles and, and healed certain people and said, don't tell anyone. Same thing. Jesus realizes that he needs to get to the cross. And if his disciples are out there spreading the news, stirring up, uh, I don't want to say trouble, but stirring up the public, and it would turn into trouble, right? People, there, there would be fights and riots over everything that goes along with this topic. Jesus realizes, I have a, I, I'm busy about my Father's business. I've got to get to the cross. So he says, guys, for now, I want you to reel it in. Interestingly enough, from this point forward, Jesus is going to start moving from the north down towards Jerusalem, and he's marching to the cross. So as we get into these, this latter half of the book of Matthew, we are in the last couple weeks of his life, right? E even here, by this point, we're in the la very, I, I want to say maybe the last month at least, Maybe the last couple weeks of his life. So Jesus is now focused on the cross. He, he doesn't want to be 
surrounded by, by groups everywhere and hindered from making his way down south. Verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. I have in my Bible the word began, I have it circled. Now Jesus is going to start talking to his disciples quite plainly about his death, burial, and resurrection. It is not the first time that he's mentioned it. I already gave you one case in John 1. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll break. You see, he has mentioned, he's alluded to it. As Jonah was three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man. He's alluded to it. But he's never come right out and just said it. Which is fascinating to me because there are those that say, Everywhere in the Bible, people have always preached the gospel. Even in the Old Testament, they say David, Joshua, Moses, all of them preached the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Christ didn't even preach the death, burial, and resurrection until these last, this last little bit of his life and his ministry. It was not public knowledge. This is something he's telling his disciples. He's preparing them. Right? This is more than just a prophecy lesson. Uh, for his disciples. He's preparing them. Guys, it's, it's going to get bad. The, the shepherd is going to be smitten and the sheep are going to scatter. It's going to get bad. And he's, he's giving them this news so it has time to sink in. Now, if I can just quickly comment on how amazing and breathtaking it must have been for, for Jesus to be able to know all these details about his death. You tell me, when are you going to die? Tell me how you're going to die. Tell me who's going to be there. What are they going to say? What's going to happen a few days after you die to you? I, that knowledge, right? We, we all just throw our hands up and say, I don't know. Jesus had all these details. If you count it up in all the Gospels, nine different things he was able to uh, tell his disciples about his death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 22, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. That is a very human response. This is coming from a good place in Peter's heart. He's not trying uh, to be disruptive or rebellious. He's trying to help. Jesus, you're the Messiah. I just said so. And you gave me this, this name that I'm a little piece of the bigger rock and gave me this wonderful privilege of being involved in the kingdom. And he's trying to protect his friend. What's wrong with that? Well, nothing. Humanly speaking, nothing. But, bigger story here. Look how Jesus responds. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. A few verses ago, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll be <laughs> A few verses ago, you see Peter as a hero. And now, full of the devil. Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, let's be careful. I, we, we often... I say we. Preachers often say, you know, he's filled with the devil. This isn't a case of, of demonic possession or anything like that. But it was a case of Satan trying to interrupt God's plan, trying to overthrow it, and trying to use Peter to do it. He was, Satan was using Peter's good intentions. Good intentions are exactly that. They're good, but they're not always God's intentions. 
You've heard me say this on many occasions. There's three categories you can pretty much put everything into. There's bad, there's good, there's godly. There's lots of things that are good that are not godly. This is one of those cases. It's good to protect your friend. But in this case, the will of God is that Jesus must die. Your friend, your master, must die. You cannot interfere with that. Even though out of human love for another, you don't want that to happen. Satan would do anything to keep Jesus from fulfilling prophecy and getting to the cross. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. What's an offense? A stumbling stone. You're trying to trip me up. You're trying to get in my way. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. What was Satan trying to get Peter to do? To act like a man. That's it. Just trying to get him to do what any human should do in this general scenario. If you see your friend about to die, stop it. But when you know the particulars of the situation, and you understand what the will of God is and the plan of God for this situation, you can't jump in. Generally speaking, you look in your life, how can I improve it? Is it okay to make improvements in your life, to take care of yourself? Yes, obviously. But what about those times where me following Christ is actually going to lead to my detriment? Right? Where it would lead to me being persecuted, my goods being confiscated, me going to prison. What about then? You see, when you add in those particulars, then I can't just act on human instinct and say, well, listen, nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. There's more to the story. And that flows right into the next part. Verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus is teaching his disciples that this very tough decision that that Jesus and Peter has just discussed, that you cannot act on that basic human instinct. You, You have to put the will of God before your own will. You have to savor. You have to be interested in the things of God, not just the things of men. That is personally applicable to all of us as His disciples. So, dying and denying. I I gave that, that's the title of this fourth point, this fourth part of the chapter. Dying and denying. The dying of Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection is a picture for us of what we have to do for ourselves. Jesus, up until the cross, He took care of Himself. He stayed away from danger, right? And I'm going to tell you to do the same thing. Don't put yourself in harm's way. You don't have to make life more difficult than it needs to be. But when it comes to fulfilling the will of God, you cannot compromise that for the sake of your own comfort. I've heard it said, I've illustrated it this way many times. God's will runs this way. Your will runs this way. It creates a cross. It's right there at the cross. You have to pick up that cross and follow Christ and say, Not my will, but thine be done. And that's how you go about living the Christian life. Verse 25, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. You see, for my sake. When you put that specific aspect into the mix. I'm I'm not going to lose my life just to prove a point, to show how strong I am. That's an act of will worship. 
But when I'm doing something in accordance with the will of God, then I have to be willing to lose my life. And, and not, not just physical death, but any part of my life. I'm just checking my note on this. Don't seek to merely do what's best for yourself. And don't seek to do what's merely worst for yourself. Right? Some people, they, they look at this part about denying themselves and they say, okay, then I'll, I'll just make myself miserable and therefore be a disciple. That's not how it works. We're, we're, you have to look at this in, this, it's in its entirety. I deny myself when the will of God necessitates it, when the cause of Christ, for His sake, when the cause of Christ necessitates it. Verse 26, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He's just trying to put things in perspective. Guys, you can always do what's convenient and comfortable for your life now, but this life is not going to last forever. Your soul is going to outlive your body. You're not going to spend forever on this earth, so you need to think about the trade-off that you're making. Temporary pleasure and comfort, eternal what? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You can make in, a, in your notes here, Luke 12, verses 15 to 20. Jesus gave a great parable there about a man building bigger barns, and then he dies. And the, and the Bible says, God will say to that man, Thou fool, thou fool, you were rich in this world, but not rich toward God. Verse 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Why put that in there? Because at the time when you are sacrificing everything for the sake of Christ, it will seem as if I've lost. I'm losing everything. Losing my life. You have to keep in mind, Jesus will come back, vindicate your actions. He will reward those deeds, and you're going to end up with so much more. And, and beyond what you could ask or think, the rewards waiting for you. And I don't mean this in a selfish way, like, look at all the stuff that I now have. But the honor of being able to say, I lived for Christ. To see the smile in His face, that's reward enough. Verse 28, and we'll finish here. Verily I say unto you, strange comment here, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So, if you look at this with its context... Right? Jesus is telling them, guys, the end is closer than you think. You think, oh man, I'm going to have to suffer and my life is going to hang in the balance and how long is this going to go on? This is a very comforting statement to say, guys, my coming is a lot closer than you might think. Now, many have come to this verse and see it as a failed prophecy. Some standing here shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming. Well, they all died, and Jesus did not come in His kingdom. So, what do we do with this? Forgive me, there are four or five various answers that you get from different denominations. It kind of depends on whatever systematic theology they use. I'm going to try to just give you the... I'll give you one answer that some use I don't think works, and then the one answer I believe that, that is what, what's going on here. 
Some say that John fulfills this, right? Uh, because the Apostle John, he got to see everything unfold when Jesus took him through that trip of, uh, in the book of Revelation, right? That when he took him up to heaven and showed him everything. And they say he's the one that fulfills this. But the, the problem with that, and I, I appreciate that John did see the Son of Man come in his kingdom in that, let's say, vision. But it says in verse 28, there be some standing here. Now, they say, but that, that could mean someone. I, mm, then it would say someone. It says some. Well, Matthew 17, which we'll study next week, we're going to move directly into the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. And up on that mountain, there was Peter, James, and John. And they saw the transfigured Christ. What did they see? They saw Christ in His second coming form. They saw the Son of Man with the appearance that He will have when He comes in His kingdom. Now, does that satisfy the terms of that prophecy? Well, for Peter, I believe it did. Uh, just turn to 2 Peter. Let me show you this. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1 and verse 14. 2 Peter 1 14. Peter, who was standing there and heard this, he, I believe, tells us in this passage that that prophecy was satisfied through the Mount of Transfiguration. 2 Peter 1, verse 14, Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. So he's writing them down so we'd always have them. Verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, made-up stories, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That matches Matthew 16, 28. But were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Eyewitnesses? They saw it. They saw it. They were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Verse 19, uh, 17. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. Verse 18, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. So Peter says we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw Him, and the way he words it here, right? We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, eyewitnesses of the majesty. So I, I see the Mount of Transfiguration. It happened seven days after Jesus made this statement, by the way. Seven days after this prophecy, those three men saw the transfigured second coming version of Jesus. So I don't see any failure in that prophecy. I think it was satisfied there. Okay, I appreciate just an extra minute or two to finish that up. I hope... Uh, well, let me say again, if you have any questions, feel free to contact me personally. But uh, Lord willing, you guys will see Garrett tomorrow night. I appreciate your time this evening. Let's pray and we'll close. Father, thank you this evening for allowing us to make our way through a fascinating chapter. So many things to learn, Lord. And I pray you'd let, let these things sink deep into our hearts. Especially, Lord, this last part about denying ourselves. Help us to have the right balance 
and be ready and willing, Lord, whatever it takes to satisfy and fulfill the will of God. Lord, there is no cost too great, although our flesh would have, (laughs) it, it wants to argue that. Lord, we know that you're worth it all. We know that. Thank you for this wonderful book. And I pray that, Lord, even tonight before we lay down to sleep, please blow the trumpet and take us home, God. We want to see you face to face. And until then, help us to stand fast for you. In Jesus' name, amen.